0: Welcome to the Business Fights AIDS podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and I'm also the host of a shot in the arm podcast and the Vax Up podcast. I've spent a life fighting infectious disease. I'm not a doctor, I'm a policymaker and an advocate. My job is to build trust between the clinical scientific communities and the general public. Recently, I've been thinking a lot about some work I did two decades ago when the world was just beginning to realise the extent of the global threat posed by AIDS. It's a story, I realise, that could be told as we enter 2022, two years into the global COVID pandemic. Well, back in 2001, denialism was taking root in sloppy pockets of academia in the Berkeley Hills and in a deeply desperate distrust of Western medical science in South Africa. We were all fighting the denialism, and one group of unlikely partners helped generate business sector support for the global fight against AIDS, with the US foreign policy giant Richard Holbrook leading the charge. I was seconded to the Global Business Coalition on HIV and AIDS from Peter Piot at UNAIDS to help support this movement. The thinking was, that as government started the complex and lethargic process of managing national public health strategies, the business community could seize the initiative and step in, or step in for just long enough to help prevent major new waves of new infections. By rapidly providing HIV prevention, voluntary counseling and testing, and HIV treatment to employees and dependents, They could buy us enough time to create the multi-billion-dollar global programs that might possibly give us the best chance to beat AIDS in our lifetimes. This is the story of one exceptional year, beginning in September 2001. We took the scrappy, desperate savvy of AIDS activism and harnessed it to some of the most effective marketing, logistics and management forces on the planet. All to fight AIDS, the first global pandemic of the 21st century. Now, the name of this podcast, Business Fights AIDS, comes from the not so snappy title Holbrook and I gave our website and emails at the time. So, Ben at BusinessFightsAIDS.org and Richard at BusinessFightsAIDS.org. And despite everything in the world order collapsing around us, that's what we did. Business fought AIDS. I wrote a fairly complete diary during those two years, which I think stands up in podcast format. In this, and the next seven podcast episodes, I present the diaries from the first full year, somewhat unedited. It's all in the present tense, and I read directly from the diaries. Three things about them. It's the story of everyone involved in the global business response to AIDS. We are characters. We're a funny bunch. And looming large is Richard Holbrook. He and I had some serious misunderstandings along the way that were frustrating, but also humorous. And Holbrook and humour don't usually go together, so there's that. My first formal day on the job was September the 11th, 2001. A terrible, horrific coincidence. That date is important for so many reasons, But for me, it deepened my love for multilateralism, the only way to act urgently against an unholy brew of domestic and international terrorism, as well as pandemics, climate change, economic strife and population shifts. Something we know today as One Health. It was also a very lonely time for me personally. Today, the real happy ending is that I'm happily married. My early 2000s self really didn't have a clue. I imagine myself to have great emotional intelligence, but that's not true. Or at least it's only partially or occasionally true. These podcasts entail a bit of popping forward and backwards across the decades. I try to keep it obvious and minimize any queasiness. So here we go. Business fights AIDS. June 2001 L.A., the manager of the New York office of UNAIDS, calls me early in the morning. I'm actually in the building next door, corner of 1st Avenue and 44th Street, in the basement at a meeting of non-governmental organizations. This is New York. The cell phone signal is pretty bad. L.A. says she hasn't been able to get through to me. I have to go to the Council on Foreign Relations at 3 p.m. today to be seen by the former U.S. ambassador to the UN, Richard Holbrook. Well, I work for UNAIDS, and I'm European, from one of the EU member nations, the UK. Our UN ambassadors tend to be career civil servants, and largely anonymous. I assume this is the case too with the US. I don't know who Richard Holbrook is. At 2pm, before I head out to the Council for Foreign Relations, LA catches me in the UNAIDS building. We need to send my resume to Holbrook. We print something out and fax it over to his office. I say that it is a bit presumptuous to ask for a resume of every UN official he meets. LA tells me that the meeting is going to be about the business response to AIDS. Peter Piot wants to help Holbrook. Well then, what on earth has Holbrook got to do with the business response to AIDS? Just before 3pm, I climb to the top of the Council on Foreign Relations all a bit pokey and small, like the public school I went to. A.B., his executive assistant, welcomes me, and we make small talk while we wait. He is running late. A.B. walks me into his office, he's still on the phone, and is talking and perusing my resume at the same time. I notice awards and framed letters on his office wall. On one frame is a melted telephone with, I think, some text from the US Special Envoy on the troubles in Northern Ireland, George Mitchell. He's thanking Holbrook for his counsel on the Good Friday Agreement. Also, there are thanks from world leaders for his negotiation of the Dayton Peace Accords, which ended the war between the Bosnians and the Serbs. Even now, it only dawns dimly on me on who he is. I recall reading an opinion piece in a British newspaper from a few years back, Asking what on earth did this Holbrook think he was doing, undermining UK interests in the former Yugoslavia. Britain had the special relationship with the US, not Europe, blah, blah, blah. So why am I here? Why is he talking to someone on the phone while looking at my curriculum vitae? We have a brief conversation. He asks me what it is like to work for Peter Piot. I offer a somewhat institutional reply. Noting that technically I work for the UNAIDS head of communications, but am now, for the time being, reporting to the head of the UNAIDS New York office. What Holbrook means is to ask how effective a leader do I think Peter Piot is. Well, bit of a silly question that, because if he knew anything about AIDS, he would know that all of us would jump in front of a bus to protect Peter. But that is the point. He doesn't know about AIDS. What do I think about Kofi Annan? Did I know that he, Holbrook, was close to Kofi? Well, I should bloody well hope that he is close to Kofi Annan. Not every American is at the moment. He notes that some of my career has been spent at Glaxo Welcome and calls it a great American company. I point out that it is British-based. There is a gleam in his eye and he says, Oh, really, is it? I think he is joking with me. But I'm so busy trying to read the signals about why we are having this meeting and why does he want to see me that I do not immediately notice the question, well, more of a directive. So, you'll be starting at the beginning of September. As if on cue, AB re-enters his office and escorts me out. She beams. She says how exciting it will be to work with me. I leave the Council on Foreign Relations and I wonder who I should call. If her cell phone is working, it might most appropriately be Kathleen Crevero, Peter's deputy. But my God, what have I just committed UNAIDS to do? But there is no cell phone signal, so I just walk back to the UN. Later, Kathleen says to me, Well, that was a very slick play. She thinks I angled for this. But to be honest, I have no desire to be posted outside the UNAIDS HQ. I had tried exceptionally hard to get hired by UNAIDS since 1996. Immediately it came into being. I was finally hired as a communications advisor in 1999 and actually started work after the Durban AIDS conference in the summer of 2000. So no, Peter and Holbrook have already decided, before I tramps up the worn stairs of the Council for Foreign Relations, that we need a new business campaign, To mobilise HIV awareness, prevention, testing and treatment, mixed in with a sprinkling perhaps of some philanthropic funding, we need a new Global Business Council on AIDS. Except that such a council already exists. At the end of 1996, I believe, a small group of Brits created the Global Business Council on HIV and AIDS. Susan Pearl unrivaled strategist, godmother to pretty much all the effective international AIDS non-profit product development partnerships, Julian Hussey, senior leader at the National AIDS Trust who knows how to draw business awards for excellence from the driest of wells, Kieran Daly, the young feisty Turk Prince of Wales Business Leaders Forum representative, the incredible Nikki Davis, and me from Glaxo Welcomes Positive Action Programme. Oh, And our first jewel in the crown, Georgia Arnold, the head of MTV's philanthropic program, Staying Alive, and Bill Rohde, her boss, head of MTV International. She shows up to meetings and participates in planning as much as the rest of us. It's quite a coup, and we are quite proud and excited to have a media executive with us. We are, at that point, 17 companies. The Global Business Council is not the only business and AIDS initiative. There is the famous Thai Business Coalition on AIDS, TBCA, which is very directly a major influence on me. It provides high-quality workplace education for employees, and it provides support to management in implementing non-discrimination policies. There are various European Commission-linked initiatives, and there are some East and West Coast US networks, we all keep each other briefed on what we're doing. The Global Business Council on HIV was announced by the CEO of Glaxo GlaxoWelcome, Sir Richard Sykes, someone I deeply admire. He was joined by Peter Piot, Executive Director of UNAIDS, and President Nelson Mandela of South Africa. Well, we announced the idea of a Global Business Council at an exclusive and expensive conference for businesses in the Swiss Alps, In the car up from Zurich, Sir Richard asked me about my life and zoned in, uncomfortably for me, merry for him, on my utter lack of interest in soccer. Ben, no question. You need to find a soccer team to support. A Brit cannot travel internationally with credibility if you don't have a soccer team. Well, it would need to be one that I didn't know anything about. Brentford? Well, where's Brentford? Just literally down the road from our London headquarters. Are you Scottish? What about a Scottish team like Stenhousemuir? Well, I'm not Scottish. Okay, another London club then, one that nobody knows. So we settle on Fulham, because nobody does know much about it, and it doesn't draw attention to itself. That advice has served me incredibly well, with the one exception of an occasion in a hotel in Chiang Mai, Thailand, where one of the staff marvelled at an opportunity to enthuse with another Fulham fan. And my ruse was revealed. The launch at the conference in the Swiss Alps was incredibly moving. Mandela was amazing. To add to the crushing list of priorities, one of the world's fastest-growing epidemics was now an existential threat to the country's young democratically elected leadership. I could see Peter Piot looking at me from the stage, nodding to himself as he saw how Mandela's simple clarion call to business to act was setting off a fire in me. We did launch the council at the Commonwealth Heads of Government conference in Edinburgh that summer. It sounds rather grand, but it was really not a success. Sir Richard agreed to be its chair, and we hired a cosy little hall favoured by Edinburgh fringe comedians. Nobody showed up, and as Sir Richard got up to speak, a lady with a vacuum cleaner walked across the empty room. I tried to ask her to stop, but she was having none of it. She was taking the vacuum cleaner from one side of the hall to the other side of the hall to start cleaning. That was her job, and that was that. This is my memory of the first iteration of the GBC. Returning to July 2001, Peter and Holbrook's agreement to set up a global business council on HIV and AIDS. Peter says it's a wise move, in part, I think, to reassure himself. We must bring MTV with us, and we must recruit some heavy-hitting companies with large workforces in regions hard-hit by AIDS. Southern and Eastern Africa, Southeast Asia, the USA. I can think of a few. If we could get these companies to take advantage right now, of the dramatically reduced costs and expanded access to HIV treatments for their employees and their dependents, could we start stalling the spread of HIV enough to give governments time to get their acts together? Maybe? I don't know. I chat a lot with Georgia Arnold from MTV. She isn't surprised that Holbrook is involved, and she says, well, thank God it's you. We trust each other deeply and have a huge win under our belt as we were able to secure Bill Rody the president of MTV International, we got him a speaking role at the UN General Assembly session as the only representative of the business sector. So we are on a high, and she and I feel we have a shot at bringing MTV and Holbrook together. Now, I believe Holbrook may have tried to recruit Georgia to the role of executive director of the GBC. But not only is she not interested, she has recently met Holbrook at a meeting of largely male business executives. He expresses his very strong inclination for mandatory HIV testing in the workplace, and Georgia, rightly, pushes back forcefully. In a later episode of Business Fights AIDS, we cover Holbrook's interest in mandatory testing and why that could have destroyed the Global Business Council in its infancy. Georgia and I organise a meeting of Holbrook and Bill Rohde. One a diplomat and financier, the other a veteran and now a TV executive – They both served in Vietnam in very different capacities. The meeting is at Bill's office in the Viacom building in Times Square. Bill is, I have to say, quite accommodating. I think he is very, very good. And I think his leadership on AIDS is probably more important than Holbrook's. Is it a sacrilege to say that? Bill says, why don't we do this together? Holbrook says, Bill, you be the first chair, and my role will be to be president, and the UN will staff us. That is what Holbrook says, and they both turn to me. I can see Bill holding back his laughter. You okay with this, Ben? he asks. Oh yes, I smile. It's not my place to say otherwise. For the rest of the meeting, they don't look at each other, but comment on a video playing on one of the televisions in Bill's office wall. It's Cher, and they can agree on how well she is holding up after all these years. July 2001. All of this business and AIDS stuff detracts from the real action happening for once at the UN. My thoughts and reflections on the UN General Assembly special session on AIDS. I was one of the UNAIDS Geneva staff sent to New York when preparations for the UnGAS and the negotiations for its political declaration were getting into detail. I was grandly called the civil society coordinator for UNAIDS. My job was to help HIV community representatives from around the world participate in the event. Most of them were not part of the formal NGO process of getting into the UN. The details are Byzantine and involve a lot of paperwork and approval from the national missions of the countries to the UN in New York. And whenever politicians criticize the UN for being bureaucratic, don't be fooled. It's the governments of the rich, powerful countries that decide to make it so. With months of planning, we were able to provide badges and access to the vast majority who applied in time, which, it must be said, did not include the then-generation of New York activists, who assumed, I suppose fairly enough, that they could go anywhere they wanted to in Manhattan, except, of course, that the UN is not US sovereign soil. Well, Sam Averett was hired by UNAIDS to help educate New York activists, and he was a huge help. But still, one afternoon, with UN Secretariat colleagues huddling behind me, I had a very odd conversation in the entry hall of the UN with a loud, aggressive human rights lawyer with a ponytail who told me that it was his constitutional right to go anywhere he wanted in the US. Not sure if that's exactly true in itself, but the UN is not US territory. I used my best BBC accent, and he had to go away unsatisfied. I was also part of the UN AIDS team led by Peter Piot and Kathleen Cravero that supported the negotiation of the political declaration itself to make sure that delegates were informed by fact, as far as was possible and as far as their governments allowed them. I was assigned to provide technical support around access to HIV treatment, not the science of treatment but the emerging public health strategies to improve access, no matter where people lived. The declaration was negotiated in earnest in the last weeks, days, hours before the special session. None of us, from the UN Secretariat, UN aides, or the delegates themselves, really got any sleep. I do recall napping on a couch by one of the rooms underground between the UN building and the General Assembly. The star negotiators for me were Desmond Johns from South Africa, who built consensus, holding the hands and guiding the slightly confused right-wing American delegation. Eamon Murphy from Australia, who I think really pushed with the French to get HIV treatment directly committed to. And Mariangela Simao, who was part of the Brazilian delegation. The Brazilians in 2001 are master negotiators, and the country's national AIDS program carries significant political weight, they have a deft but ultimately very firm hand getting other delegations, particularly the Europeans, to support their very own brand of human rights. I drank up all these strategies of all these negotiators, knowing that one day I would need these tricks. The way these things work, the head delegates of countries, prime ministers, deputy presidents, but definitely not ministers of health. They make speeches on the floor of the General Assembly, and then there are side events happening elsewhere around the building on topics of relevant interest. I'm too tired to remember what those might have been. I know I was involved in a business response to AIDS thing, and I scribble in my diary that there was a press conference with Holbrook, with Peter, with Bill Rohde, and the head of ILO. I have photos taken by an official photographer, but no recollection of what was said. All the speakers did appear very emphatic, though. One night, during the UNGAS, I am called back to the UN Secretariat to meet with a senior official. I'm going to add a health warning here. My notes are spotty, and there may well be things, there will be likely parts of this anecdote that are not well remembered. But the overall theme is correct. Earlier in the day, US and European activists had organised a protest and about 30-40 to civil society representatives from around the world joined them. These kind of protests are standard fare at AIDS conferences. Indeed, it wouldn't be a successful AIDS conference without them. But they are an aberration inside the halls of the UN. The UN security detail handled the protest with cool professionalism. They smiled welcomed and directed the protesters around the corridors, and then escorted them out of the building, taking their access badges from them as they left. That night, just before midnight, I haul myself back to the UN, and in the HQ of its security detail, I look at a heap of badges sitting on a desk. These are the UN complex building access badges that have been issued to AIDS advocates, People living with HIV and human rights activists from Eastern Europe, South Asia, West Africa, East Africa, South America, including countries with horrific human rights records. If we return these badges to the New York missions of their countries, as we are supposed to do, well, there is no telling what these countries will do to these activists. We are talking persecution. We are talking disappearance. Yes, we really are talking about these things. I pick up the badges, I touch the plastic, and I see their faces. I know these people. I'm not instructed to do anything, but I nonetheless divide the badges into two groups. The first group, Europeans and North Americans, and their badges will be returned to their national missions. The activists will most likely have their badges returned to them. Nothing will happen to them. Indeed, they may be celebrated. In the second pile is everyone else. I'm asked, can I arrange for these badges to be returned quietly to their owners? Can I do that? Can that be done discreetly? I propose a solution. There is an international AIDS NGO that has coordinated the involvement of HIV community groups and people living with HIV. I contact them, even though it is now well past midnight. They are still awake, drinking and chatting with colleagues that they rarely see. That's not surprising, actually. We agree to meet later into the night and that they will quietly and unobtrusively return the badges to their owners in the morning. I don't sleep. Not for the first time. I feel an incredible anger at a particular brand of US and European AIDS activism. The fuck you brand. I can't quite frame the language but they assume that their right to protest usurps everybody else and that nothing is more important than the way that they protest. It feels to me like empire. The executive director of the International AIDS NGO that returned those badges to their owners, well, they actually spoke during the high-level General Assembly special session itself. It was a profoundly moving experience, And their words drive me, and will continue to drive me, I think, for the rest of my life. The country negotiators could not, or would not agree to name the actual groups most at risk of HIV. Religious, cultural, political opposition, or just plain meanness held back their inclusion in the final declaration. But words matter. How can you fight stigma and discrimination if you will not name the people who are being discriminated against? So on the floor of the UN General Assembly during the special session, the NGO executive director said, You won't say their names, so I will. Men who have sex with men. Girls and women. Sex workers. People who inject drugs. Mid-July 2001. I meet Holbrook once more before returning to Geneva to pack up my chattels and goods, such as they are, for a planned return to New York in September. But I don't have a record of what we say. Those last weeks in Geneva are a bit tearful. It's summer. Europe is beautiful. Everything is beautiful. Also, I spend a week with a friend from the UK, SC, in a British cheap and cheerful gay resort in the Canary Islands. We drink a lot. S.C. is a haute couture designer, and we have known each other since I was 12 and he was 10. Earlier in the year, he made a pair of plastic jeans for me. So on this vacation, I wear my branded, original, genuine imitation, leather black snakeskin jeans. In cold weather, they stand up on their own. In hot weather, and I hope he doesn't mind my saying this, it's not nice. You feel a strange, artificial damp heat between your legs at the end of the evening. And you can barely peel them off your legs before you go to bed. Before I went on holiday, I sent Holbrook an email and I asked him what books I should read before I start working for him. His reply is a bit cheeky, and he recommends a book about the founders of the US. I read it, it's okay. Will Hutton wrote a book that argues that the US Constitution was really what the UK should have implemented at the end of the 18th century to save its democracy. I think he is right. British democracy did not really evolve adequately as a result of the American Revolution. But as long as the UK remains a meaningful part of the EU, it probably doesn't matter. But if the UK ever decides to go it alone, then it will be in deep trouble. I also read Holbrooke's to end a war. I am sitting on a lounger around a pool in a cheap hotel in a resort in Gran Canaria, And the immensity of the achievements and the drive of the person I am about to work for slap me. Yes, I feel as if I've been slapped hard across the face. I did not expect him to be the person who really did negotiate the end of the wars resulting from the collapse of Yugoslavia. I'm struck by his comment that Milosevic could have been a great leader if he had been born into a functioning democracy. One day during the holiday... A FedEx package is delivered with papers for my signature. It is the paperwork for establishing the nonprofit status of the Global Business Council in the US. Strangely, it will be legally based in somewhere called Delaware. I wonder if this is a mistake, but I think better of it, Holbrook's office does not make mistakes. I find out later that it is common practice for the establishment of many nonprofit organizations in the USA. How very odd. The courier waits until I have finished signing the papers, then whisks them away from me and leaves. Everyone, lounging by the pool, stares at me. SC thinks it is very funny, very Joan Collins, as if I am a soap actor pretending to buy my own oil company or real estate business. All I need is a big floppy hat or big hair like Ivana Trump. September the 9th, 2001. I fly to New York and I decamp into a small, smelly apartment hotel next to the Queensborough Bridge. At the bottom of the street, there is a bed, bath and beyond. I smooch around the store looking at things I might buy to furnish whatever apartment I end up with. I am actually meeting a realtor on Tuesday morning to look at a few properties in places with exotic names like Chelsea and Tribeca. Round about this time, I'm not quite sure, but definitely before September the 11th, I clearly remember one moment walking down to Bed Bath and beyond. I pick up a phone message from Andy, a very close friend of mine, since my early adulthood in London. I missed their call. The message says that I should not worry, but yes, they tested HIV positive and it's all good. Not to worry, no need to call them back. But of course, I do call them back, and we talk like we always talk. As this is my diary, I can write what I like. My feelings are complicated. Knowing Andy, if anyone can handle an HIV positive diagnosis, it is them. But the positive diagnosis was sought for treatment of a serious infection, which is usually considered an AIDS-defining illness. Thus, Andy has been positive for a while, and the virus has taken the opportunity to wreak major damage on their immune system already. So I don't know what to think about that. But there is also a sense of relief. Andy has crossed the Rubicon, so to speak. There will be no more worrying about whether or not to test for HIV – The matter is decided. And so they must embrace the next phase of their life, no matter how long, no matter how physically or mentally painful. I also sense that in our conversation, they are at peace, not as if they are about to die at peace, but a reconciliation, a determination, if you like. I find that fascinating and deeply spiritually reassuring. September the 11th, 2001. Well, this was supposed to be my first day on the job. The Global Business Council's very generous offices have been donated by Viacom, MTV's parent company. They are located in Times Square in the high skyscraper that houses the headquarters and the famous MTV studio that faces down onto Times Square, two stories up from the ground, into the crowds. They, in turn, stare up to see the studio where pop stars perform and celebrities talk. Not today, however. I am there by 8am, and I take the elevator to the 44th floor where our office suite is located. I have forgotten how extraordinary it is. My God, this is fabulous. Overwhelming, too much in Geneva, I shared an office now I'm on my own. It is a huge corner office. I even have a sofa. You can see both rivers. you can see uptown and downtown. You can see the two towers of the World Trade Center if you lean slightly into the sheer glass. There is a huge desk. You sit at it, facing downtown, you're back against the glass wall, uptown to Central Park, all around me on three sides. It's brilliant blue sky. It's breathtaking. And I am forced to sit at the desk and try to take it all in. The views, the space, the being above Times Square. As this is Viacom, there is television with cable in the office. I turn to CNN because I don't suppose the BBC is available. Something to keep me company while I take in what this office means, what it has to offer, and what I will need to do for the next however many years until UNAIDS calls me back. At around a quarter to nine, just after 8.46 actually, there is smoke in the sky downtown. CNN reports that a plane may have hit one of the trade towers. Was it a plane? Was it an accident? This has happened before, right? It's terrible. Hope we can get everyone out safely. I don't know what any of this means, so I return to the desk and I put pens and pencils into the drawer. I'm supposed to meet the realtor at 9.30am in Tribeca, I think I have just a pinch more time to revel in this space a little longer. Then, after 9am, and I'm not really sure how to write this, something makes me look up to the television screen and out of the corner of my left eye to the smoking north tower. And then wham! Out of the corner of my left eye, I see and I sense something. Not smoke exactly, not for a second. Out of the corner of my right eye, I see... And my full attention is drawn in horror to witness a black, spidery airplane hit the South Tower, like millions of other people watching around the world. It is clearly a passenger plane. And with that, the world changes. I leave my desk and walk into the hallway of the 44th floor. It is quiet. I can't see or hear anybody. That is discomforting. I move to the elevators and press the up and down buttons, but I obviously do not want to go up. A downward elevator opens and I enter it. It smoothly and quickly takes me to the ground floor, or first floor as Americans say. There are not many people about, and the reception to the Viacom building is not intuitive. There are massive escalator banks to the far sides of the Viacom building facing Times Square, but the flow towards them is not intuitive. Maybe that is deliberate, to prevent fawning fans from overwhelming their stars. I make myself move, find and then take an escalator and I am onto the street of Times Square. My first thought is to call the realtor and confirm whether or not our appointments to view apartments are still confirmed. Well, of course they aren't stupid. I do call their mobile telephone number and of course the lines are busy and of course I can't get through. So what do I do? Well, to begin with, I walk south. I don't know why. I certainly don't want to walk towards the towers, but I don't know where to go. My very limited knowledge of New York suggests that before you reach the financial district, there are fewer skyscrapers in the area called Chelsea. Am I right about this? Well, directly north of me, there clearly are many skyscrapers. And if this is an attack on skyscrapers, I'll be safer heading away from them. What if this was a biological attack and the planes are full of anthrax? Well, it would be stupid for a biological weapon to be in an exploding aeroplane, wouldn't it? Wouldn't the virus or bacterium or whatever it is just be burned in the explosion? Or would it be aerosolized? What if it's a nuclear bomb? In the far reaches of my brain, I seem to pull out some awareness of dirty bombs that spread radioactivity rather than causing huge nuclear explosions— The two attacks on the two towers don't appear to be nuclear explosions, so if it is radioactivity, I don't think it matters where I will be. So I think, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'll stay on the route I am on, which is 7th Avenue going south, I think. There are people on the streets, bewildered, shocked, staring south at the towers. I think we are still assuming that people are able to leave the towers safely. They were designed for this, right? But an hour or so later, one tower collapses, followed by the second one. I am in Union Square and experience the air on my face speeding past me. Or at least I imagine that is what happens. It's hard to tell what is actually happening and what my senses are trying to keep from me. There is a collective, oh, from the people around me. A man on a bicycle passes us as we stare into the columns and dust and God knows what, ashes and things and... He shouts, this is the end of the world. I know now to turn around and head north. I overhear people say that the bridges and tunnels are closed, so we are probably trapped on the island. I think I am probably safest in the miserable little apartment hotel by the Queensborough Bridge. At least the bathroom doesn't have its own window and I could create a little safe space there if needed. If for some reason the Queensborough Bridge does open, perhaps I can walk across it and onto Long Island." but wait, that's an island too. Don't I just want to be in the continent of the US, somewhere like Colorado or California or something? I keep trying to call my parents in the UK and tell them I'm still alive. At last, I get through to my father, who reassures me that my mother will be home soon, and he will be sure to tell her before tea. I assume that, as usual, he knows more than he is letting on and saying this to reassure me. I also think I should call someone in UNAIDS. Perhaps the head of the New York office. Does he live in New Jersey? But where is that exactly? I don't have his telephone number. Maybe I should leave a message for Kathleen Crevero, and my new UNAIDS boss, Bai Bagasal, the head of partnerships. But the lines are busy again, and I can't get through. I can't even leave a message. I spend the rest of the day huddled on the bed, watching CNN. I can't stop watching. There is now a confusing ticker tape-like row at the bottom of the screen, and it is hard to know whether to look at that or to look at the shocked news anchors and commentators on the main screen. It is exhausting. Eventually, my mobile phone, which belongs to UNAIDS and has a Swiss cell phone number, it begins to pick up a signal, and I'm able to speak to my parents. It's late for them. My mother and sister were in a department store in Bournemouth and watched the scene unfold on TV screens in its electrical department. I also arranged to spend the early evening with a friend I have in Manhattan, who lives in somewhere called the Upper West Side. We are able to order Chinese food and we eat in silence. I am jet-lagged. I'm shocked and I'm tired, so I walk back to the East Side. Back inside my room, I receive a few calls. I'm making a note of two of these calls, which stand out. The first is from Andy, who has been trying to reach me since the terrorist attacks, and who is checking in to see that I am safe. He is also calling to make sure I understand that I am supported, as I called to make sure that he understood that he is supported. The second call is from Holbrook. The ambassador is on the line. Please hold. Garble, garble then. Ben, checking in on you. How are you? Where are you? I'm fine. Are you okay? We are stuck at LaGuardia Airport, and we can't get back into Manhattan. I have to go. But if you need anything, call AB. You have her number. Do not go anywhere. Do not do anything until you get my instructions. AB will keep you updated. Do you understand? Then the call ends. Does this mean I should not leave the hotel, or does it mean I should not leave Manhattan? Not that I can do so. My second thought is that it is incredibly kind of him to call. He must be incredibly busy. He must be involved in whatever the U.S. is doing to understand this attack, protect itself, and punish the attackers. I'm going to stop writing now. I have a headache. The Business Fights AIDS podcast was written and narrated by Ben Plumley. It is produced in association with Lato Bead Resources, producer of Posi, a Pan-African design clothing brand specializing in the use and redesign of Ankara and other African fabrics. The Business Fights Aids podcast is directed and produced by Eric Aspera of NewsDoc Media, and the digital producer is Troy Aspera. The Business Fights Aids podcast is a project of the Icana Health Action Lab.